Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Military History, and this is your host, Bob Wintermute. Our guest for this episode should definitely be familiar to regular listeners, as he first joined us in 2011. At that time, Michael Nyberg talked with us about the origins of the First World War, as described in his book, Dance of the Furies. He returns today to this subject in our discussion of his latest book, The Path to War, How the First World War Created Modern America. Now, just as in the first book, Mike considers the background of war fever, in this case involving the United States between 1914 and 1917, and how the nation was changed by the war. You should also note as well, since our last talk, Mike has been appointed the inaugural chair of war studies at the United States Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. So with all that said, Mike, welcome back to New Books in Military Thanks History. a lot. Thanks for having me back. Glad to have you. Um, you know, I want to note that okay, it's really no surprise that you've returned to the First World War. I think anyone who's followed your publishing and academic career is obviously familiar with your work to date in the field. What I think is really interesting is that you've chosen to examine the larger context of the long debate over entering the war that went on almost from the beginning of the war in Europe to our own decision to join the conflict on April 6, 1917. That's kind of a long wind-up to the question, which is, how and when did you decide to take on this project? And, you know, what kind of events or interactions influenced your choice to do so? I think I've been thinking about this one almost since I finished Dance of the Furies, which was a book about Europe. And I guess my brain was already starting to think about how a similar study might look for the United States. How would we understand what was going on here in this country. And so when I went to give lectures at various places on the Dance of the Furies book, I would often budget in a little bit of time to go and look at local archives and, and local historical societies and local libraries that might have material. And they always sort of said the same thing to me. Well, we don't think we have anything on that. We've got lots of stuff on the war itself, but we don't think we have very much on the run-up to the war. And of course, what I found is just the opposite, that people were talking about this and arguing and debating and discussing and to the best of my knowledge, no one had ever really really dived too deeply into this material. So that's what gave me the idea that maybe there was a book in it. Right. Well, I mean, it certainly follows the parameters, like you say, of, of the course you set in Dance of the Furies, where you really immerse yourself into the, the literary and, and the, the media culture of the, of the period to uncover some you know, pretty startling findings. You know, and I think... From my own perspective, after reading the book, you know, there's clearly two central themes that are at play with each other here. You know, first, American opinion was perhaps even more sharply divided on the question of joining the war than historians have allowed traditionally. And then second, you know, the war itself was a central moment of self-realization for the now modern industrialized nation. You know, 
to what extent are these themes interrelated, you think? Or is this all a matter of just contingency or action? Well, I think the, the, the story of America in the First World War is just so incredibly complicated that it's difficult to kind of create even a mindset. It's difficult to create that kind of structure for the book. And we have – the First World War for Americans is really kind of two histories. It is the history of the U.S. getting involved in the war, and then it is the history of how that process is remembered throughout the 20s, 30s, 40s, and then moving forward. So what I was trying to do in that book is get back to the ground as much as I could. And as you noted, uh, the, you know, there is tremendous debate in this country about what the right path is going forward, and that changes over time. So that what I argue in the book is that by late 1916, early 1917, American views have come to a much greater degree of consensus than would have been possible in 1914. So what I wanted to do was kind of trace that, that kind of funneling of opinion uh, down from 1914 over to 19, six, late 1916, early 1917, when I argue there's a pretty solid consensus that we don't want to get involved in this war, but we're out of options now. We're, we're out of choices. Well, you say early on this is an effort to capture the cultural moment of America's transition from a peaceful neutral to a wartime belligerent. Um, I want to ask you, you know, why do you think that this is a, a more rewarding approach or a relevant reproach for the active historian today? I mean, some could argue that perhaps the story of, of America's entry into the First World War has been um, covered to some detail. I mean, clearly it hasn't, but taking the, the devil's advocate route, you know, what does you know, reconsidering this offer the historian? I think what we've done, we as a community of historians, has looked at this topic in particular very top-down, and that's a function of the kind of overwhelming control Woodrow Wilson had over the mindset of some Americans, Not clearly not all, but some, uh, and the way Wilson has kind of stood as a symbol, either positive or negative for Americans in this time. What we haven't done as a community of historians is try to get underneath that political process and try to see these debates as they were happening. And another argument that I make in this book is that Wilson is very much following, not leading, what the American people want to do. Wilson is, obviously, if it's not a subject where you can write Woodrow Wilson out of the history, but to write it from the perspective of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue seemed to me just the wrong way to think about this. So I think what this book is doing is kind of shifting our our, our viewpoint, or as they would say here at the Army War College, opening up our aperture to understand what's happening at the sociocultural level and the way that's pushing politicians rather than the other way around. So is it fair to classify this then as an effort or a look at the war from the lens of the war and society subgenre? I think so. I mean, well, you know, I was or... trained as a social historian. My, my, my graduate school training is in social history. So that never really leaves you. You know, the, the way to think about problems is to look from ground up and to look at the state not as something that is pushing people, but as part of a kind of iterative dynamic that's happening. And that's the way that I see this. And, uh, you know, I don't see the First World War, at least up until April 1917, I don't see this as the federal government forcing Americans to accept a viewpoint. It is the government sort of reluctantly coming to the conclusion that it's behind where the American people are. So I think when you, again, when you change the way you're looking at this, when you look, the old line used to be bottom up instead of top down, the picture looks really, really different. And in my view, it looks more accurate. Mm -hmm. It's more predictive. It's more powerful when you look at it that way. Sure. Oh, sure. Well, you know, it comes through in the opening chapters, too, you know, which 
you know, the extent to which American participation, or rather initially non-participation, in the war is as an ideological marker becomes very clear. And I want to wonder, why do you think that many historians have failed to acknowledge this? I think there's the this role of I think there's a couple things going on. I think it's just it is. Um, it is certainly fairly defensible to say that it is presidents and, and ambassadors and senators that ultimately are the influence makers. They're the ones that finally make the decision. So it's not unreasonable to begin thinking about a problem from that level. And frankly, the papers are easier. If I wanted to do this from the perspective of Woodrow Wilson and his advisors, I could probably do it without leaving my office with the materials that are published on those individuals. It's tougher to go out and go into some of the places that I was able to get to, Des Moines, Iowa, Nashville, Tallahassee, Florida, you know, places that had these kind of local records that tell a different story. Um, and that's not to say that previous generations of historians were, were lazier, but there's also a lot more material that's digitized. It's a lot easier to do that kind of work today than I think it would have been 30, 40 years ago. Sure, sure. Do you think it's even easier since you worked on Dancing Yeah, there's no, no question. Yeah, some of the stuff uh, I was fortunate enough to get through the Iowa. When I went to Iowa, when I went to Des Moines, I was able to do some work there, but so much of their material was digitized. Political cartoons, newspapers, uh, the Library of Congress, um, um, Remembering America, Memory America, whatever the, 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 oh, the project yes. where they've digitized newspapers from the era, uh, j- just makes it just so much easier uh, to do, and there's just so much more material available online, so that when you do show up in an archive, you already know exactly what it is you're looking for. It just it makes life a lot easier, as as Wayne Lee liked to say. It, it turns this into a raid rather than a siege, which I think is a great yeah. way to think about it. <laughs> I'll have to I'll have to remember that reference myself <laughs> next time I go into the archive. I'm here on a raid. Yeah, I'm, I'm, am I here to raid or am I here to siege? And it actually makes it a lot easier the more information you have to make it a raid, and that makes short-term trips uh, a lot more productive. You know, I wonder if the fact that, you know, get, perhaps get a little presentist here in talking about the book, the book, I wonder if the fact that we live now in such an ideologically divided moment, that we are becoming more sensitive to this aspect, you know, the, the role of ideology in the story of the First World War, you know, as the centenary of our entry into the war collides with our own ideological divide. Yeah, I also think we we sometimes forget just how deeply ideological past time periods in history have been. Um, you know, there there were serious debates, and I don't cover it so much in this book, but they come through clearly. There were serious ideological debates about what the United States should get out of its participation in the First World War and what that post-war world ought to look like. And there's Wilson with a kind of internationalist vision. And then there's Henry Cabot Lodge in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee with a much more nationalist, much more unilateral vision. And th- that's clearly an ideological divide, a chasm that's there from 1914 on. So one thing that has to happen is those two ideologies have to reconcile with one another or at least have to agree that on the issue of American entry, they agree on the necessity for entry, maybe if they don't even agree on what's going to come next. So I think sometimes we we miss that, too, that we're not the first generation to live through a partisan ideological age. Um, I I think of the wonderful quotation Theodore Roosevelt, when he heard about the Zimmerman telegram, he supposedly said, if Wilson won't declare war now, I'll go to the White House and I will skin him alive. That's a kind of partisan ideological statement there as well. 
<laughs> you think so, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it doesn't even, that also doesn't include or doesn't take into account, you know, other ideologues as well, like Robert La Follette, who has his own views on the war. Or, you know, Theodore yep. Bilbo and representing the, the Southern Democrats. Yep, absolutely. And this is another thing that I think if we keep the focus on Wilson and his opponents, as a prior generation of historiography had done, you're oversimplifying. And there are, there are you know, hundreds of voices in, in the United States, each representing a, a sub-interest or, or an ideological viewpoint. And they were really diverse, and they're debating with one another, and some of those ideas you know, fall away. The strict isolationist view really does fall away after the Lusitania. Other voices come to the fore, and it just, it's a wonderful period of debate and discussion. And sort of, to my mind, to imagine that people in the past weren't having these kinds of debates, though we're having them today, it doesn't make any sense. You know, Americans were just as argumentative and just as ideological and just as partisan 100 years ago. And to think that they weren't kind of flies in the face of common sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can build on that as well and, and make the argument that the average American in 1917 may have been more or better informed about Germany, or they believed they were more informed about Germany, albeit from their own ideological perspective, uh, than many Americans are today with regards to their own competing interests. Um, how much did the American average American understand about the So it, this is another one of these kind of myths, and you'll see it pop up now and again in history books, that Americans were so isolated that they weren't paying attention. And it, it really takes about 15 minutes of research to realize that that's simply not true. You can go to the diaries and the letters of almost any American that I found, and of course they're talking about it. They're writing to their family. They're you know writing letters to the editor. They're involved in public debates. There are lecture series that go on in most of the major cities where they bring in experts to kind of come and give lectures about what's happening in Europe. And it's a little like a Sunday news show today. You get someone that says two plus two equals three. Someone comes in the next week and says two plus two equals five. You know, it's a kind of debate of ideologies. But they are debating it. There are the best-known journalists in America, the best-known writers in America go to the Western Front, and they come back and they write best-selling books. So the idea that Americans are not paying attention simply doesn't stand up to the evidence. Um, now, there are periods like the Lusitania sinking where interest goes up, and then there are periods, say, the end of 1916, when interest wanes a little bit as, as America's touched a little bit less. Um, but they're pretty well informed. They understand what's going on. They understand not only what's happening in Europe, but what the events in Europe might mean for what's happening in the United States. Is is the interest though, or is the coverage lopsided? Is it lopsided? It is, but you know, it, it not at the beginning. That is, at the beginning, it seems to me there is much more of an approach. There are kind of three approaches. There's a pro-allied approach. There's a kind of haltingly pro. I wouldn't say pro-German, but a defensive kind of Germany's position, an articulate one, is made. And then there's a kind of a strict neutrality position. And what happens over the course of 1915 is that that pro-German position just goes away, both because of Belgium, because of the Lusitania, because of some domestic sabotage issues that are connected back to German agents uh, in the United sure. States. Um, and then by late 1916, early 1917, I think that strict neutrality option kind of goes away as well. So um, the, the, the picture becomes a little bit sharper in focus over time. Okay. Well, you mentioned the idea about the German plots in the United States, the domestic sabotage that took place. Um, on the East Coast and even in the, in the Midwest, 
you know, you have to wonder, you have to ask, you know, even if some of these efforts were successful, why didn't someone in Germany or someone in the embassy or the consulates in the United States really pause to consider what kind of effect these might have on American public opinion? I mean, you would, you would think they would be more sensitive. I think that. there was some of that, but I think more importantly, German leaders were, were looking at the United States as, for all intents and purposes, a member of the Allied Alliance. And remember, this is a time period when the United States is not a great military power. It is a great economic power. So with the vast majority of that economic power tied to France and Britain, most Germans don't see too much of a distinction between the United States in its kind of neutral status and the United States in what it's doing economically. You know, and, and the American definition of neutrality being that we can make as much money as we want off of this war. And then American sympathy plus the practicalities of shipping, insurance, credit, all that boring stuff that historians don't like to talk about, but all of that ties the American economy to the British economy. So for all kinds of reasons, the Germans are looking at an American system that is, for all intents and purposes, a member of the alliance. So the, the biggest sabotage event occurs not too far from where you are right now in Jersey City, New Jersey, and it occurs during the Somme campaign and the, in, in, in 1916. That's no coincidence. The belief is if you can blow up the Jersey City munitions depot, you can stop the flow of munitions coming from the United States to England and then from England to the Western Front where they're killing German soldiers. So they are thinking about it, but I think they're doing a cost-benefit analysis and figuring out that they're better off taking this risk than letting the United States continue right. to pump all this money and all this armament into the British and French armies. You know, but coupled with that as well are some pretty ludicrous or laughable attempts to at, at sabotage. And again, it just makes me wonder to what extent do the Germans, and particularly the German civil service, really understand the United States yeah. and, and, and its people? Yeah, th this is a big point that I try to draw in the book, big contrast I try to draw in the book. There's a big contrast between Germans living in the United States, that is American citizens, born in America, German Americans, and these Germans that are coming from Germany. Um, and those, the latter group, that is German government agents, are the people that are doing most of the sabotage or at least running it. And I think you're right. I think most of them didn't really understand America all that well. Um, some of them were perceptive enough to realize that there was a tremendous cultural difference between Germans born in Germany and Germans born in, say, Wisconsin, that they saw the world in very different ways, um, that a German born in the United States was, was trying to assimilate as quickly as he or she possibly could. Um, and that was the thing I think that they missed. They expected there to be this kind of rising of German-Americans, and there just was no interest among the German-American or minimal interest among the German-American community in actually doing that. Plus, the German-American community made up largely of Frankfurters, or exactly. Bavarians, or Exactly, and, and these are distinctions that, that mattered in 1915-1916, that a Bavarian wasn't a Prussian, that there was a difference between those two things, and people in that time period understood that. How do the belligerent nations view American neutrality? You know, we've, we've talked about, of course, how Germany views it, but what about the French or the English? It wasn't just accepted that America was his passive participant. No, I mean, the, the French especially, uh, I think it's fair to say, the French especially looked at the Americans uh, somewhat hypocritical, as, as being hypocritical. That is, the Americans were willing to say, we want you to win the war, we want Germany to be defeated, 
but we're more content to make money off this war than we are to actually put our money where our mouth is. Now, the difference, of course, the, 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 the exception to that are these volunteers that are coming from the United States, both combat personnel and nurses and volunteers of all kinds that come to France and create these very strong linkages between the United States and France. This is one of those kind of history and memory issues. You know, after 1940, after Algeria and Vietnam and all those things, that memory becomes more complicated. But during World War One, most Americans felt a greater affinity toward France than they did towards Great Britain. Um, so, you know, th there is this kind of sense that the American government is doing things wrong, but the American people are doing the right thing. So the relationship is complicated, but but on the whole, individual to individual, group to group, it's quite positive. You know, it seems that members of the media were the first to turn against neutrality. Mm -hmm. You know, why is that? And, you know, what effect there were a number of very famous reporters, very, very well-known reporters, and some writers, including a woman named Mary Roberts Reinhardt, who was a mystery writer, um, who went to the Western Front very early on. And they all they go through a similar process. They all sort of say, we're going to condemn the war, we're going to condemn the stupidity of all sides. And they get to the Western Front, and they, they see that the French and British didn't want this war. You know, Germany, France is in the war because Germany invaded French territory. They see uh, a French army, or excuse me, a German army committing atrocities in Belgium. And, and this is an important part of what I argue in the early chapters of the book, that what most American journalists are saying is, look, don't believe the stuff coming out of the British press. We can't verify that. We can't know whether that's true. But here are the things that we have seen with our eyes. And not only does it change the way they view the war, it changes the way the American people view the war. So it's true that the British are feeding the Americans with a bunch of propaganda that is pro-British and anti-German. It is equally true that the American reporters themselves are saying, look, we can't verify what we're hearing from the British, but we can verify these things, these things we saw with our own eyes. And that makes a tremendous difference to American readers who are much more receptive to reading this, these things from Americans than they are reading them from the British. So back then, the shift in public opinion, was Wilson necessarily blind to this in 1916? Well, I think... Up until the election? I think what Wilson is trying desperately to do is find a way for America to benefit from this war economically, because the U.S. is in a recession when the war begins, and the, the war pulls us out of the recession almost within weeks, um, while at the same time minimizing the risk of the United States being drawn in. And Wilson himself is pro-allied. Wilson himself believes that the best thing for the United States is if Germany is defeated. Um, but he doesn't want to go into the war unless he's quite clear how you're going to do that. And this is a United States that still doesn't have an army uh, capable of really doing anything. And I talk quite a bit in the book about the failure of, of, of attempts to reform the army in 1915 and 1916. So Wilson, in my view, is not this sort of messianic idealistic president. He's a politician sort of stuck between a couple of rocks and a couple of hard places. You add Mexico to that, you add Veracruz on the Mexican border. Absolutely. Add the, the, the crisis there, add the concerns for the Panama Canal, which had just been built in 1914, add the concerns on the West Coast for Japan and, what, and the growth mm -hmm. of Japan during the war, and the United States is, is finding itself. This is, I guess, one of the core arguments I make in the book. The U.S. is finding itself in a position where by being neutral, we have made ourselves more vulnerable, but the country feels that it has become less secure, not more. So at a certain point, neutrality as a policy doesn't hold anymore. The question is, what replaces it? 
Well, I'm going to skip ahead. I had a question lined up um, to ask about the dilemmas of presidential electoral politics juxtaposed against other issues like the place of African Americans in society, the issues of security in the Mexican border, uh, the growing threats perceived in the Pacific from a strong Japanese alliance with the British Empire. All of these are factors that you would think or you could contextualize as pulling public opinion against joining the war. I'm kind of curious in reading, how does the Wilson administration ultimately subordinate or suborn these different challenges that make the case for entering the war, particularly after his successful uh, presidential run in 1960. So I don't think Wilson is making that case. I really don't. I think what's happening is that there is a groundswell coming from the other direction. And you can see it most clearly in the big cities. New York City goes on a war footing well before Wilson decides to take the U.S. into war. Um, you know, you, you see it across the country after the Zimmerman telegram, which of course is threatening not just the east coast of the U.S., it's threatening the southwest. So you see this, you know, rising of militia groups. You see this, you know, there was a wonderful collection in Tennessee of letters to the governor of individual Americans offering their services and offering their property, offering their horses, you know, Spanish-American war veterans offering to go back into service or train young men. And all this is happening before Wilson made the decision to ask for a declaration of war. So what's happening is this kind of groundswell of people saying, look, we really are under threat here. And you get people like Mary Roberts Reinhardt, who writes this beautiful piece for the Saturday Evening Post in mid-March, in which she says, in mid-March being after the Zimmerman telegram, but before Wilson asks for a declaration of war. And she writes this piece in which she says, look, I assume that by the time my readers read this, we will be at war. In other words, it's not Wilson's April 6th speech that does it. That decision's already been made. It's just a question of when the federal government is going to catch up. So this is what I mean by shifting the focus. I don't think it's Wilson coming out and saying to the American people on April 6th, hey, I want a declaration of war from Congress, and I need you all to get behind it. I think rather it is a situation, and we have some memoirs of cabinet officials who confirm this, saying, look, if Wilson doesn't declare war soon, we have a real, we have a real crisis here. The American people don't think we have an option now. If he can't figure that out, we're going to have a real problem. So That's interesting because that puts Wilson in the same perspective or the same place as William McKinley a generation I, ago. I think so. I think so. And I think Wilson was – I think Wilson found himself again caught between a rock and a hard place. If there's going to be a war, something has to come out of it to justify the war. And this is where his you know, grand ideas of the 14 points and these kind of higher ideals come from. Um, but it's not a case I, – I really don't think it's a case – of Wilson going to the American people and saying, I need, I need to talk you into something you don't want to do. Well, that kind of changes the whole narrative then of the uh, Committee of Public yep. Information and what its role is. Yep. Can you comment yep. on that? I mean, at the same time, the book kind of stops in April of 1917, but at the same time, you do have a lot of people in the American elite who aren't sure that the American people actually will do this when push comes to shove. And again, I want to be as clear as I can. The pressure from the American people in early 1917 is not necessarily, hey, we want to go fight a war. The pressure is, hey, neutrality isn't working. What we've been doing is making us more exposed, not less. So the fear inside the American government is that maybe they don't really want to go all the way in on a war. So we need to be sure that we're covering our bases. And I do think also there is a nativist 
fear that the immigrant groups won't be as committed to this as will the native-born WASP American population. And that's really what Creel is targeting. That's what the government is targeting in the Alien and Sedition Acts and some of the other you know, real pressure that does come from the American government once the war began. I think it's misguided. I think they read the American people incorrectly. It, that is, it's, it's, not, it's as much a reaction to the social and cultural environment of that time period as it is a response to the needs of the war. Right. Well, you know, you mentioned, again, the German-American and Irish-American communities, and the, the standard narrative has been that they had to be convinced or we had to safeguard safeguard the American people from or, or from those communities from possible and, uh, manipulation by German operatives in the United States. What I appreciate what you you do in Path to War is you point out this really isn't the case at yeah. all. These are largely loyal Americans. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are small, isolated groups of people, especially in the Irish-American community, who are saying, look, we can't go to war for Britain. If we're gonna... Well, they're Fenians, though. I mean, that's to be sure. expected. Sure, sure. But they're not saying that means we have to wish that Germany wins. Right? They're not saying that that means we have to put America in a more exposed position. What they're saying is we can't go to war as an arm of the British Army. And that's a more complicated, more nuanced, more sophisticated argument than their anti-war. So this is why when Wilson brings the United States into the war, this is one of the reasons, the United States never signed the 1915 Treaty of London that formed the alliance. Instead, Wilson says we're going to be an associated power. But if you look at what the Irish-American people are saying, it's a much more complicated argument that they're making. What they want to see is America be the dominant force winning the war for Wilson to apply national self-determination to Ireland, and then Ireland will get its independence from England. Oddly, what that means is England has to also win the war. But it has to be a situation where Wilson has enough authority to be able to press his vision of the peace onto the British. So it's a much more complicated, much more nuanced picture than just their anti-war. How about, I mean, how about perspectives of what's happening in Russia during this time? This is, mm-hmm. of course, before the Bolshevik Revolution, but at the same time, uh, you know, the Russian Kerensky government, provisional government, is on the ropes. Yep. Is, are there any concern in American newspapers or in the American public opinion about what is happening? In there Russia? is a great kind of. Um, I don't quite quite the word, quite outpouring of joy when the Tsar is deposed by by the provisional government by that first Russian revolution. There's this great overwhelming sense of joy that maybe just as the civil war took a couple of years and an awful lot of blood, but it resulted in the end of slavery. Maybe something similar is happening here that after years of blood and years of toil and years of war, maybe this is the beginning of a trend toward democracy. Maybe the people that were on the sort of more aggressive, uh, the Elihu Roots, the, 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 the General Woods, the Theodore Roosevelt's, who were making that argument that this war can get rid of autocracy and bring democracy to Europe, maybe they were right. And this thing in Russia that's happening is worth fighting for. Because if Russia becomes democratic and Germany at the end of the war becomes democratic, then maybe Europe really is fixed then maybe you really do get to a point where the world is moving in the direction the United States wanted it to move. Now, that's, I think, why the Bolshevik Revolution later in the year is so disillusioning and so shocking to Americans, because it's going to, of course, turn that around 180 degrees. But when the czar goes away, there really is this sense that maybe this war, for all of its expense and all of its cost, is going in the way that 
that we want it to go. It is producing some of the bigger outcomes that we want it to produce. And if that's the case, then America cannot sit on the sidelines. We have to be involved in this. We have to protect that little bit of good that's going to come out of this war so that it can become a lot of good. And that narrative is there in February, March 1917. And without it, it would have been a much more different political environment inside the United States. One of the communities we've left out in talking about ethnic groups or ethnic minorities, of course, is the African-American community. And I think as you know, we look at recent scholarship, particularly from Chad Williams and others, they point towards a good bit of ambiguity on the part of African-American, particularly African-American intellectuals who are participating in the war. What did you find? in looking through the the African-American press? So the first thing I would say is I will defer to Chad on all of these topics who has written just masterfully on on this topic. And if any listeners want to know more about the African-American experience in World War I, he is the person you should be reading. I'll I'll point out we've interviewed Chad about that book, and it is absolutely an essential book. He's a a first-rate scholar um, and a nice human being, by the way. But anyway, on to the question you asked me. there is a, a, a sense when the war breaks out uh, that there there is some way that this can benefit the African-American community. First of all, by shutting off the flow of labor migration that's coming from East and Central Europe. That is, it should mean more jobs. It should mean better economic conditions for African-Americans uh, at home. There is also a, a, a real strong, powerful way of saying, look, this is an opportunity to demonstrate, as Chad argues in his book too, that we are Americans also. And I even found a couple of African-American organizations that were arguing for English-only education. They were arguing for, some of them were arguing for getting rid of hyphenated Americans, you know, and all of these kinds of things. In other words, following through the mainstream of what was happening. But their argument is similar in some ways, to the ones that the Irish are making, that we're not going to go to war, we should not go to war, for the purpose of perpetuating the unequal system that got us into this in the first place. If you're going to do this, and you're going to bleed, and you're going to put your son's lives at risk, the only reason to do it is to produce a better world when this thing is over, and that should include thinking about race. It should include fixing the inequitable systems that exist in Europe, the United States, and elsewhere in order to produce a more just and equitable world in the post-war period. Um, But there is not much of a sense that, that I should phrase this in the positive, there is a a, a powerful sense among the the material that I looked at that African-Americans see the world in much the same way or want to see the world in much the same way as Americans writ large do. That is to say, if there is a threat to the United States, the United States can count on African-Americans as Americans to defend their country. Well, you know, let's talk about preparedness, which, you know, of course seems to be far more prevalent and supported than historians have previously considered. And it brings up, for me, more of a historiographic point, which is to say, is our perspective of the First World War in 2017 still affected by the 1960s-era wave of interpretation? in a way similar to that that we've seen in the UK and how they've, they've contextualized the war until late. Yeah. Now, I wonder if in the accounts of readiness and the Plattsburgh movement and the growing American support for the war, whether or not they've been tailored, not necessarily by you, but by other historians, to fit a more recent moral imperative. Yeah, I, I think not only would I agree with that statement 100%, I don't think there's been a wave of First World War historiography in this country 
between the 1960s and what's happened in the last few years with the centennial. There really hasn't been a kind of questioning of that kind of 1916 literature until quite recently. You know, there's one book that was David Kennedy's Over Here, um, and then there were a few more specific studies, but there wasn't a kind of wave of research to respond to. Um, so yes, I, I think we're looking at it very much from a, from from the viewpoint of the 1960s, which was itself a reflection on the stuff that was written in the 1930s. So that's one reason why methodologically for this book, I tried not to look at any sources written after the war. I wanted to get as close to those grassroots as I possibly could, because as soon as the war ends, and as soon as it's obvious that the peace isn't going to do what you thought it was going to do, Americans' views of the war begin to change instantly, and I talk about this a little bit in the conclusion. So it's it's difficult to go to that well and get really good material on what was happening 1914 to 1917. And as you note, preparedness is, is one of these issues that we just sort of lost a thread on as historians and didn't really think about in the ways that people were thinking about in that time period. Right, right. Well, you know, I think more so than Dance of the Furies, you know, you've written this book with an eye toward future events in our nation's experience, so obviously because it is a mayor-centric topic this time around. What lessons or concerns do you see in America's path to April 6, 1917, that we might consider? Today? Well, the first thing I think is to understand the role of domestic, not just politics, but domestic interest groups and the way that they were understanding what was going on in Europe and the way that those different viewpoints mattered as the as Americans were were thinking and, and debating this. And the second, and I kind of concluded with this, I think, is the distinction between what the American people thought they were fighting for and what Wilson thought he was fighting for. And what I mean by that is that the, the, the date that we commemorate is the end of World War One. We pick November 11th as the day that we do Veterans Day in this country, as France does, as England does. That's the moment when most Americans thought the war was over, that it's time to get the boys back home. The threat to the United States, which is the reason we got involved in this in the first place, that threat has now been eliminated. Germany cannot harm the United States. Wilson, of course, had a much more expansive vision that led to the agonies of the Paris Peace Conference. It led the United States to send soldiers to Russia. It led to all of these things that the American people were not interested in. So in some sense, there is a, a, a conflict in, in goals for conflict termination of getting this war over that never really did get reconciled in the United States. I would argue it doesn't get reconciled in Britain, Germany, or France either. But in the United States especially, there isn't a national conversation about that. And I think you see that in the more recent wars the United States has been involved in. There's not really a discussion about what it is you're going to be able to do to bring this to a close. Well, as always, Mike, you know, it's been a great pleasure to talk with you. I mean, I've enjoyed it immensely. I hope our, our listeners do as well. And as you know, we have a few closing questions that we like to ask at the end of our interviews. Now, first, what are you reading, or in this case, even watching, that you'd like to recommend to our viewers? And then second, what future projects should we be on the watch for? So I've been getting really into podcasts lately, uh, trying to take some of my dead time and trying to turn it into knowledge time or something where I can I can grow from. So the the two that I've been listening to most have been the Hidden Brain podcast, which NPR does, which is a, a wonderful exploration of the way that our brains function, the way that we our brains process information and make decisions. And the other is a phenomenal BBC podcast called In Our Time, uh, where the host brings in four or five experts on a topic from Mary Wollstonecraft to 
I don't know, the tutors to electricity, what, you know, and instead of having them argue with each other, as might be typical in an American show, it's for experts that don't argue. They kind of build on each other's arguments in order to build on each other's points in order to help common listeners understand uh, complex topics. And I found both of those to be tremendously valuable. Um, that's interesting. I'll, I'll listen for the VNR Time podcast. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's uh, Melvin, uh, I can't remember his last name, but he's a, a British BBC host and does just a phenomenal job of finding talented people. There's one on Clausewitz, I mean, a lot of historical topics as well, uh, just to explain what, what this thing is and why it's important for today. And I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying that one an awful lot. Um, and the other, the project I'm, I'm considering, although I haven't made up my mind fully, I may do a book next on uh, America's relationship to Israel-Palestine from 1942, when there's this big meeting in New York City, to 1950, after the creation of the, the Israeli state and U.S. attention turns over to, to Korea. So I'm starting to read a lot of stuff on the Middle East in this time period, on the British mandate, uh, the end of the British mandate, and America's kind of how Americans were looking at the Middle East in this time period, and America's role in the Middle East. As the British are leaving, the Soviets are kind of creeping around, and the United States has to figure out do we want to be a world power? Do we not want to be a world power? What do we do about this part of the world? And one thing that's become quite clear to me is that the, the four questions that continually seem to come up today in the Middle East, final borders, status of Jerusalem, uh, status for refugees and role of the international community, are in fact the same four topics that are debated in the 1940s. So um, I think there might be value in going back and seeing how those things played out, doing something similar to what I've done in some of my other books and assuming that this doesn't come from the president down, but that it comes from the people up. Right. Well, that sounds fascinating. I mean, you know, certainly taking a look at that early stage of, of U.S. Jewish slash Israeli relations, because you can't really say it's Israeli right. relations early on. It, it, it is right, and you've got the State Department, which has one view, the president who has another view, all these interest groups in the U.S. There's an international community that's desperately looking to the United States to do something as Great Britain is kind of pulling back. So... Um, it, it's a very dynamic uh, period in American history, um, and I'm kind of curious just to, to uncover some of that. A bunch of prominent Americans were involved uh, in, in one way or another, and a couple of not-so-prominent but very interesting Americans were involved as well. So I think there's an interesting story to tell there. Well, many thanks again, Mike, for joining us. Absolutely my pleasure. Always great to talk to you.